Hello and welcome to Healthline 3, I'm Terry Simmons. Today we're talking with Dr. Katherine Gale of WK Advanced Cardiac Imaging. We're going to be talking about cardiovascular disease prevention and risk stratification. So we'll be taking your calls throughout the show as usual. As a reminder, please make sure you're in a quiet room with your TV turned all the way down before making your call. You know the number, it's 318-219-4569. Be sure to call us and get answers to your questions by talking directly with Dr. Gale. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be with you. Really happy you're here. I love that we were talking during the break about some fun things and yes. some interesting things uh, about this subject. And so cardiovascular prevention, disease prevention is really key and this is going to be such a fascinating half hour. I'd love to get to that. So let's talk about how important that is. Sure. So as we talked about briefly, um, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in the United States. And as a country, we spend over $200 billion a year on cardiovascular disease, the treatment of the disease, medications for the disease, lost productivity, all of those factor into that number. So it's a big deal. And I think really important to recognize is that a lot of cardiovascular disease can be prevented. So understanding what the risk factors are for developing cardiovascular disease, how to modify those risk factors is really important and can make a big difference in your life. So I love this because we want everyone to hear that and call with questions about this if you have a question about preventing it, because this is key. Yes. We usually hear about <laughs> efforts too late or we think we have heart disease because we're already in that risk factor zone or our parents had it or something. So you're here, to, we're gonna talk about today how we can, we're just our own person, our individual, every individual can prevent heart disease. Exactly, and I think that's really key is that it's a very individualized strategy, so what works for one person may not be the answer for the next person, but understanding your history, your risk factors, and what you can really do to modify those is super important and can be very effective. Gosh, no kidding. And so let's start with the general risk factors. Sure. So there's kind of things that everybody always talks about and always knows about. Um, Having high blood pressure is a risk factor for developing cardiovascular disease. Having high cholesterol, having diabetes. Then there's some of those risk factors that we kind of know about, but maybe we talk about less. So a family history of cardiovascular disease, particularly in someone very young. So young for cardiovascular disease would be considered someone less than 55 years old if they're a man, someone less than 65 years old if they're a woman. So understanding not only if you have a family history of cardiovascular disease, but do you have a family history of early cardiovascular disease? Any type of condition that puts extra inflammatory stress on your heart can cause heart disease. So inflammatory conditions that maybe people don't think about like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, those sorts of things can put you at risk for heart disease. And then there's some risk factors that many people don't ever talk about, which I think are really important. And that is risk factors that are kind of unique to women. So a history of preeclampsia or eclampsia in pregnancy can put you at risk for cardiovascular disease. A history of early menopause, menopause before the age of 40 can put you at risk for cardiovascular disease. So a couple of things that we don't often talk about. And of course, there's plenty more that we can discuss 
but those are the big ones that I want to bring to the forefront of our discussion. Very interesting, especially the, the preeclampsia, which as we know is buildup of fluid or swelling. So that pregnancy. is high blood pressure that occurs in pregnancy um, and then it can lead to other symptoms that kind of fall into this eclampsia category. Um, it's often an emergent pregnancy condition and so many people know that they've had it. Many people do not realize that that can put them at risk for heart disease in the future and that your doctors need to be aware that you have that history so they can be more aggressive in evaluating you for heart disease and treating any of the other risk factors you may have. Okay, and we hear about that coming up during pregnancy and or we're told sometimes it goes away after right. in pregnancy. Right, you deliver the baby, everything's fine, right. yes you had this, but yes there certainly are lasting ramifications of that condition. That is really good to know for mothers, first time mothers or not, if yep. you had this, if you did have it, to watch and take exactly. extra care to prevent that heart disease exactly. from coming in. Exactly. And, and you're saying early onset of menopause also? Early onset of menopause, there's something about the hormones um, changing in a woman's body that puts you at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. We see an uptick of risk in women of, for heart disease after menopause anyways, beyond that risk that is just expected from normal aging. And early menopause can accelerate that risk even further. So recognizing if you're someone who has had early menopause, you may be at increased risk for cardiovascular disease, and you may need to be on a little tighter of a testing schedule to be able to identify those risks and manage anything before it becomes cardiovascular disease. Wow. I that's so interesting that, that, that those two things that you mm -hmm. probably don't think at all that they would be linked to heart disease. Right. And, but good to know that you can, that it's still preventable. You can work even in more consciously toward exactly. that. Um, so besides being, is there anything that's more like risk factors that are tied to men? And we'll get back to the women too. But while we're talking about sure. this for our, our, our viewers all around watching. Sure, so I think um, the things we've talked about, hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, those are all very classic risk factors in men. I think one thing that a lot of men probably experience but don't think of as being necessarily a risk factor for cardiovascular disease is sleep apnea. So if you have disordered sleep breathing, if you have someone who snores in your family, um, it might be a man and that could put him at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So knowing that snoring in and of itself and not getting that good restful sleep and having that sleep disordered breathing can put you at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. All right, good to know. And we have a caller for you. Okay. Hi, Jim, thanks for calling. What's your question? Yes, uh, thanks for your program. Uh, I have a question. Um, uh, I recently, uh, actually last week, my legs were giving me problems and I was diagnosed with a problem where I'm not getting proper blood flow and I have a blockage in one of my legs. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm getting proper blood flow down to my feet. So it wasn't until I left, after I left there, got to thinking about my heart, you know, since I got some kind of clotted blockage in that, could that be going elsewhere in my body? Could it be in my heart? Uh, I'm not experiencing any symptoms at all of heart issues. Yes. I'm 60, uh, I think that's an... What 
get your thoughts about Yeah, that's an excellent question and a really good point. So what I think you're describing would fall under the category of peripheral arterial disease or PAD, and that is kind of a cardiovascular disease equivalent. So we would treat you as if you do have cardiovascular disease and very aggressively manage all of those risk factors, your blood pressure, any high cholesterol you might have, diabetes, et cetera. So I think that's a great question. And yes, if something is happening in arteries somewhere else in your body, we certainly worry that that same process could be happening in your heart. So I would encourage you to talk to your primary care doctor about that and make sure that you've undergone all of the appropriate testing to ensure that we are doing everything we can to keep your heart protected as well. Uh, can you touch on, like, you know, I get the normal physical once a year and don't have diabetes and cholesterol is okay, but can you just touch on what tests you would recommend doing? Sure. So I think those normal things, maintaining a good blood pressure for anybody who has established um, peripheral arterial disease or coronary artery disease, a blood pressure goal of less than 130 systolic, the top number, and less than 80, the bottom number a diabetes A1C, hemoglobin A1C goal of less than 7%. Um, for cholesterol, even people with technically normal cholesterol may benefit from a statin medication if you carry a diagnosis of peripheral arterial disease or coronary artery disease. Um, you know, even if your numbers look good, you may be someone who should start on a statin medicine making sure that you're getting the recommended uh, exercise per week. So that's 150 minutes of moderate activity or 90 minutes of high intensity activity every week. And we can talk more about that in a little bit. Um, and then really just ensuring that you're moving your body, you're eating healthily, and that your physicians are all aware that you do have this diagnosis of peripheral arterial disease, which does put you at higher risk for coronary artery disease or cardiovascular disease. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for your call. That was really great call, really yeah. good information. Need to know. I hope he does well. I mean, he had great questions. Yeah, I think that's a really, I'm excited he called and asked because I think a lot of people don't realize if this is happening in the arteries of my leg, this could be happening in the arteries of my heart. And as Jim noted, absolutely that could be. And so very important if you know you have those kind of high risk conditions, we absolutely need to also be thinking about what could be going on in your heart. That is such a good point. Do you find that that sometimes um, as patients and not being so medically aware that um, we don't put it together, that we don't? We think Absolutely. if it's one place, we just don't know to Absolutely. ask about Absolutely, and I think, you know, largely that's a failure on the healthcare system as a whole is that we should be the ones saying, hey, you have this, that means X, Y, and Z for the rest of your body. Um, and I think we are doing better at that as in general, but still there's always room for improvement. And so I'm really glad Jim called and asked that question because I think it's relevant to many, many other people. Really good. And I'm glad I brought up the communication factor because like you said, it seems like over the past few years at least, <coughs> we are getting better at communicating. We're not afraid to ask questions. And I'm sure with getting on Google and all of that, right. it does raise questions, but as long as we know kind of what to ask, we right. don't know what we don't know. And doctors also are welcoming all of these conversations. So Absolutely. That is half of the job is making sure our patients 
understand their conditions, understand their body, and we are empowering them to do everything they can to stay healthy. Yeah, and it's so appreciative because doctors will take all the time we want. If we'll just do it, if we'll just ask and spend the time. Exactly. So that's really great. Exactly. So let's talk about, we, we mentioned during Jim's call, we were going to talk about movement and exercises and different things. And, and we talk about that all the time. It doesn't mean if you're afraid, you want to prevent this or you've been diagnosed to go join a gym and it has to be really strenuous. Just move. Right, right? exactly. So when patients ask me, what are three things I could do for my health that aren't the hardest things ever? My answer is very simple eat real food, mostly plants, and move your body. So from that moving your body, our recommendations are 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity a week. Moderate intensity would be walking three or four miles an hour at that sort of pace, riding your bike very leisurely, dancing, yoga, anything you enjoy doing. If you're wanting to do a high intensity activity, you can bump those minutes down to 90 minutes a week and be meeting the recommendation. So a high intensity activity would be something like running, jogging, um, riding your bike at a brisk pace over 10 miles per hour, doing any of the Zumba classes, things like that. Those are high intensity activities and you can get away with a little less time doing the exercise because you're doing it a little more intensely. And you suggest just try a few things and do find something you enjoy doing exactly. so you're going to do it and exactly. don't worry about what anybody else is doing. Exactly. It doesn't need to be a chore. If walking is your thing, you can go walk outside, you can walk in the mall. If you think walking sounds terrible but I think I could dance for 30 minutes a day five days a week that's great do that it really it doesn't matter what it is as long as you're moving your body you are doing something healthy for yourself if you're moving your body yeah and just be creative dance around the house turn on some music and just dance around the house exactly and it doesn't movement. have to be all together so you might right. have 10 minutes where you could go take a walk around the block that counts towards your 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity a week you don't have to do an hour at a time. Find small times during the day where you can do something good for your body and that will add up. Yeah, and finding ways to work it into your life, like just naturally, like parking. We've always heard that, park far away from the door. Exactly. Walk the whole parking lot. Exactly. Take the stairs take when the you stairs. can. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All of that adds up. Yeah, really good advice. It's kind of fun when you think about that. Sometimes right. just look at, at the end of the day, look how much you just naturally moved around right. and then add a little bit more the next day. So right. probably moving more than we thought, but exactly. consciously. What about nutrition? Is there any one plan that's better? So or? I think especially in the past several years we have learned more about this and you know diet fads come and go but what has been proven is that a, a largely plant-based diet that consists of healthy fats which are normally liquid at room temperature um, is the best for your heart. So eating a mostly plant-based diet, lots of vegetables, fruit, whole grains when you're going to eat grains, um, choosing lean proteins, especially fish is very good for your heart, and then really avoiding things like trans fats and saturated fats. So if you look on the back of a package and it tells you it has trans fats or it has saturated fats, be aware of that and just know that there might be a healthier option that doesn't have those trans fats or saturated fats. Right. So I don't think it has to be a very 
prescriptive thing for people who want to Google something. The, the diet that aligns with these ideals most closely is the Mediterranean diet. That is typically your heart healthy diet. Um, and that can be very, very beneficial to people who are wanting to look for something in their diet to change and maybe help their um, body eat a little more healthily. That's such great advice too. And, and it's good to talk about finding something like, we keep hearing about the Mediterranean diet, mm -hmm. and that's been around a long time. It yep. keeps coming up, especially right. when we're talking about our heart and just a general overall healthy thing. But I like what you said about just use this as a guideline. Right. Look at here what's good about it, and right. you can modify it to your, which I think is the most doable exactly. um, nutritional plan, not really a diet, a good nutritional plan. Exactly. This is, think of it as the way you eat now, not your diet. Yes. Um, I think that's the most helpful in recognizing that Nobody's gonna be perfect. And if one day you decide you want a chocolate chip cookie and ice cream, that's okay. As long as 90% of the time you're making those healthier choices. It's, it's all in moderation. And truly the best thing to do is something that is a little healthier than what you were doing last week, last month, last year, and something that you feel like is manageable for you. Right, it sounds like the same lines of the exercise. Look exactly. at what you're already eating maybe. Don't exactly. be hard on yourself. Exactly. No shame, no blame. Look at what you're already doing well. Find those things, keep doing those, and then just maybe, you know, it makes that cookie and ice cream a real treat when you, exactly. when, and you tend to enjoy it more. Exactly. And do you find that that's, why is it like our body, I think it's our, our really good health is our natural state of being. It wants to be healthy right. and goes toward that's that. That's right, your body feels good when you're treating it well. Mm -hmm. It just does, and so that is kind of positive reinforcement in and of itself. You eat this, you feel good, you have energy throughout the day, and you wanna keep doing that. Sometimes it's just taking that first little step, even if that little step is saying, okay, I'm gonna add a vegetable with dinner tonight. Mm -hmm. That's great, that's a step. Yeah, and find a vegetable, that one vegetable you like. It's okay exactly. if that's all you like is green exactly. beans or all you like is broccoli, and that's what you do every time. That's and, fine. You know, that's, that's making, a, that's, that's progress, right? right. That's it's right. progress, not perfection. Exactly. Just, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. Exactly. Just do better, you know, right. to do great. Right. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about exercise mm -hmm. and nutrition. How about mm -hmm. sleep? So this is something that's kind of newly recognized as a really big deal for heart health. So good restorative sleep is really good for your heart. It takes stress off of your body. It takes inflammation down. It's just, there's a reason why we're supposed to get seven to nine hours of sleep a night. That can be really hard, mm -hmm. especially when your mind is going 100 miles an hour all day and you just wanna get in bed and turn on the TV and zone out. But prioritizing sleep is really also prioritizing your heart health. Many things that can disrupt sleep can cause extra inflammation in the body and therefore lead to an increased risk of heart disease. So I think it's really important. The first step is recognizing if you have some sort of sleep disordered breathing problem, sleep apnea, et cetera, and getting evaluated with a sleep study to understand what that problem might be and what you need to do to fix it and treat it and make sure that your body is getting enough sleep while you're in the bed. Because sometimes people say, oh, I, I go to sleep, I'm in my bed for eight hours, but I wake up just feeling terrible and like I haven't slept at all. Well, that could be a hint to you that maybe you're really not getting that good restful sleep and something could be evaluated and change so that we can help you with that. Yeah, it's a good to point out that there's a difference in getting eight hours sleep and getting eight hours rest. Right. 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. So just being in your bed for eight hours doesn't cut it. If you are waking up feeling like you haven't slept at all, that should be evaluated. Right. And even if you are used to having the TV on, you, you say you can't fall asleep without the TV. We need those things to calm down. Maybe it is good to just try a different way. Make your room. Let's talk about some things we need to do to make our bedroom or wherever we're sleeping a little more conducive to sure. getting rest. So keeping just um, low level lamps on at night, not the big overhead lights on, making sure that your blinds or your curtains are pulled closed so that the natural light doesn't get in, really making your bedroom sort of a wind down area. So do your best to avoid TVs in your bedroom um, and certainly TVs 30 minutes before you're gonna be trying to go to sleep have a cool, dark place. I think we all sleep better when it's a little cool oh, yes. and not hot, hard to do in Louisiana, <laughs> but um, add a fan if you need to. And certainly white noise can often help people kind of get into that place where they can turn off their mind and go to sleep. There's lots of other things we can do to kind of circle back. People who exercise during the day often sleep better at night. So some of these habits and lifestyle changes are really reinforcing one another. If you exercise during the day, you feel more tired, your body sleeps easier at night, you have a more restful sleep, you wake up with more energy, you're more willing to exercise during the day. So it just kind of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy to do that. Yeah, it all works together. <laughs> Drink that water during the day, flush out your system, <laughs> right. get a little exercise, That's eat that right. vegetable. That's right. Uh, and then you're right, you'll find, you know, if you just try it, just keep going there, and then you'll see that your body will just it, it sure. wants to go to sleep, it wants to rest. You exactly. know, it's had all this good stuff, it's feeling good, now it's time to sleep. Exactly. And your body just instinctively knows that sometimes it's really good. So maybe even blackout curtains, do what you can to make yeah, it really good and dark in there. if you're who needs a very, very dark room to go to sleep, certainly that can be helpful. An eye mask can be helpful, earplugs can be helpful. Anything that helps you just turn your mind off and cue your body that it's nighttime, it's time for me to sleep, it's time for me to rest is a good thing. And what about if someone goes to sleep, but they wake up, like they've slept maybe four or five hours and then they wake up. Do you suggest yeah, anything that can, be, that can help them get back to sleep? That can be really, really yeah. frustrating, certainly. And I'm not a sleep medicine doctor, but yeah. I think, you know, try not to get on your phone, try not to turn on the TV, maybe get out of bed, read something calming and restful for 10, 15 minutes. If you find yourself feeling tired, go laid back down, see if you can go back to sleep. Yeah, I've been told that really does help. Don't try to lay there and, <laughs> and go back and forth and toss and turn, just get up. Right, Go get, get up, a little sip of water, around, get a book to read, get calming. a different room. Mm -hmm. You're right, yeah, just that change of scenery, because that works with everything, I right. think. Just disrupt, <laughs> you're feeling disruptive, well, just go ahead and just disrupt the whole thing. Exactly. And then come back to exactly. bed. Exactly. So, well, listen, do you want to talk about like the things we talked about, blood pressure, diabetes, those kind of things? Is there a range that where they should be? I know. It's very individual, but exactly. it's kind of nice to talk about these general terms and then we'll right. bring it so back. So in general, we want to keep people's blood pressures less than 100 millimeters, 130 millimeters of mercury on top, the systolic number, and less than 80 millimeters of mercury on the bottom, the diastolic number. So 130 over 80 is kind of the target range. Now, certainly some people with certain conditions need a little bit of a lower blood pressure goal. And some people who have other conditions, we kind of allow kind of a higher blood pressure goal, but in general, 130 over 80. Again, the best ways to do that are exercise, which can be really helpful in lowering your blood pressure, eating healthy foods, um, 
really limiting salt in the diet. So less than three grams of salt a day is kind of the general recommendation. With certain conditions, we push that even lower to two. Um, making sure that you are doing what you need to do to get the sleep that you need. A lot of people with sleep apnea or sleep disordered breathing do have higher blood pressures. Um, and so treating that alone can allow your blood pressure to come down. And then if you're somebody who has really difficult to control blood pressure, that's something we need to know about because we need to search for underlying causes other than just your run of the mill high blood pressure. So if you're on more than two medicines for blood pressure and it's still very hard to control, that's something we should know about and should dig into a little bit further. Okay, and are some people just you hear about some people just have a natural low blood pressure. Yes, is so it, that's normal for them. Low blood pressure is rarely a problem unless you have symptoms from it. So I have patients whose blood pressure is routinely 100 or 90 on top and 50 or 60 on bottom. And as long as they feel fine, that's totally fine. Um, your body will compensate, it will get blood to your brain. Now, if your blood pressure is that low and you feel lightheaded or feel like you just can't get up and go, that's a problem and we should evaluate that. But in general, a low blood pressure with no symptoms is not something we worry about. Okay, and if you do, if you are one of those who have a lower blood pressure mm -hmm. and then you go to the doctor and then it's 130 over 80, which is normal and they're not gonna be alerted, should you tell them that's high for me because it's usually low or is that just not to worry about? You can, you certainly can. Um, a lot of patients have a little bit higher blood pressure in the doctor's office. We call it white coat hypertension. Just doctors tend to make people a little nervous. Um, but if you know that your blood pressure normally runs lower at home, certainly we want to see that. So if you're in your doctor's office and your top number is 150, but at home it's always 120, let us know that. And we might send you with a blood pressure cuff, a blood pressure journal to kind of keep track of what your blood pressure does on a normal week um, and not over treat because of one number we got in the office. Okay, and what about diabetes when we talk about that? Sure, so diabetes is a really big risk factor for cardiovascular disease. We know that high blood sugars can kind of accelerate the cardiovascular disease process and controlling those blood sugars is really key in controlling your risk. So for anybody who has a diagnosis of diabetes, um, we try to keep your hemoglobin A1C less than 7%. And we know that at that level, um, we have brought you back to kind of an acceptable A1C that we don't think will significantly accelerate your chance of cardiovascular disease. So that can also be really hard and it requires working with your physician and managing your diabetes medicines. So a lot of these things that you're doing already for your other disease processes can help with your cardiovascular disease risk. Right, and it's, it's such an interesting condition. I mean, you have to really want to get better and really monitor it because it can be. I mean, it's the only thing that I know that we're told we can really almost cure it and monitor it with diet alone and lifestyle alone yeah. and keep yourself from having to go on the medications. Right, but and for some people easy. that's true. For certain types of diabetes, it's easily managed with uh, diet. Um, and some oral medicines, but a certain type of diabetes, type one diabetes, mm -hmm. there's 
nothing you can do with your diet right. or oral medicines that's going to help you have to have insulin. And so I think recognizing that there's these different flavors of diabetes and that um, what, again, works for one person might not work for the next person. It really requires an individual analysis and working with your physician one-on-one -on -one to develop the plan that's best for you. Really is good to know because it's not one size fits all, anything that you have, because there are different variations of every kind of condition and exactly. disease out there, which is so great about talking to you and other doctors who come here. It really does. Listen to that, you know, first. I had someone yesterday saying, you're your own puzzle. That's right. Everyone is their own puzzle. And so uh, it's what's right for you. Exactly. So talk about cardiovascular disease. How is it calculated? Sure. So the major way we evaluate someone's risk for cardiovascular disease is with something that's called the ASCBD risk calculator. And this is something you can Google. Um, you might not know all of the numbers that need to go into it, but it's easily accessible online. And what it basically takes into account is your age, your cholesterol number, your blood pressure, your A1C, and we run this through a calculator and it gives us a number. And that number is your percent chance of developing cardiovascular disease within the next 10 years. Anything less than 7.5% is kind of considered a low risk. Anything 7.5 to 20% is intermediate risk and anything over 20% is high risk. I think the important thing to recognize about that calculator is it does not take into account all of your risk factors. So something like an early history, uh, early family history of coronary artery disease, uh, preeclampsia, things like that do not go into that calculator. And so that's why it's really important to use this calculator, but also take it in the context of the patient as an individual. If I have somebody who I think is low risk, but has all of these other risks factors that don't get calculated with this, I might treat them a little differently than somebody who's low risk and doesn't have any of those extra risk factors. Okay, oh, that's very interesting, the way that's calculated and bring that in there. And um, we have about a minute left. I don't I have so many okay. more questions, like if that's unclear <laughs> or what happens, but also um, what are some resources that exist for people who wanna know more about this before I let you go? Sure, so I think, um, especially for women, if you Google Go Red for Women, that will take you to an excellent resource um, that is specifically geared towards women and cardiovascular health and disease in women. So that's an excellent site. The ACC or AHA, American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association have excellent resources for patients and providers alike on their website that's very easily accessible. And then as always, talk to your doctor because they know a lot about this. Primary care doctors, family care doctors know a lot about this and are very willing and able to help you. What a wonderful way to wrap this up. Thank you so much for giving those resources and thank you for all the information. Thank you. absolutely wonderful. Thank you. As always. And everyone, thank you so much for calling. We'll see you next time on Healthline 3.